Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, let's open up to Romans chapter 11 this morning and consider the word that the Lord has for us. As we have sung the word, we also want to read the word and we want to preach the word. We want to hear the word. If you didn't catch it, as Graham led us in a uh, uh, song that we I don't think have sung more recently, but uh, a song that walks straight through Matthew chapter 6 uh, and uh, is, yes, the Lord's Prayer, uh, but also Jesus Christ, the Lord's challenge to not be anxious, uh, to store up treasures in heaven, not here on this earth. So a great reminder in song of God's Word. Let us be reminded of... Uh, God's Word uh, in, in our reading and in our, in our preaching this morning. Romans chapter 11, I'm going to read verse 25 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible uh, under your chair. It's probably on page 891, somewhere around that, 891. Romans chapter 11. Verse 25, this is the word of the Lord. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just As you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Would you pray with me again? Father God, I ask that you would help us in this moment as we have read your word and want to consider its meaning together today and then desire to apply it to our lives as we go out this day. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for making this gospel known to us who have believed. And I pray, Jesus, you would make this good news of salvation for all who believe known to those who have yet to believe and are here hearing these things this morning. And Spirit, I pray that you would help me in my preaching and proclamation. And Spirit, I pray you too would help uh, those who are listening and, and hearing, that they wouldn't just hear with their ears, but they would Uh, be able to hear with their hearts as you have opened their eyes and their ears and hearts to hear and see and hopefully believe these things to be true. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you caught it there at the very beginning, but Paul reminds us of something that he told us uh, the previous uh, passage, one that we looked at last week. If, if you have your Bibles open in Romans chapter 11, you could go back to chapter 11, verse 18, where the phrase is, do not be arrogant. Or you could go to the end of verse 20, where Paul says like that, do not become proud. And here in verse 25, he's continuing with that idea with this phrase, lest you be wise in your own sight. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I struggle with that. Uh, being wise in my own sight, thinking that I have it uh, all figured out, all together. And Paul probably thought that of himself at times and probably knew that his listeners and his readers probably struggled that, with that, which is why he's saying, do not be proud, do not be arrogant, lest you be wise in your own sight, three times repeating this phrase. It's something that we all fall, fall prey to. Uh, we, we've been watching, as Daniel mentioned, the March Madness. We've got our brackets. Uh, mine went down last night. Um, I need my son's team to lose to win the family bracket tomorrow night. My only way for me to win is for him to lose, uh, which isn't a great place to be rooting as a father. Nevertheless, uh, as we've been watching, I, I saw this one moment as some of the basketball greats were having a discussion, and as they, uh, they did, they were asked by one of the reporters, you know, you know, some say you were the greatest defender of all times. Is that how you saw yourself? Or some saw you as the greatest asset to the team. Do you, do you see yourself like that? And they kind of all came around and they were like, well, of course. Of course I do. I mean, as an athlete like that, you, you have to see yourself. as the, You have to believe yourself that you're the best defender. Otherwise, you're not going to be the best defender. So, yeah, we all thought we were the best. And they're looking around this group of group of guys, uh, you know, thinking about their past, uh, and this, this, that, or the other, um, which in thinking about it, I, I don't think is necessarily true of all athletes, that you have to think that you're the best uh, to, to play your role and to do your part. Um, but at the same time, I'm thankful uh, and, and, and want to say that's not true of Christianity. It, it's not uh, our place to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be the best. I am the best. I have to believe that I'm the best so that I will be the best and this, that, or the other. Um, I'm thankful that's not true of me as a pastor, that I have to be the best and believe that I'm going to be the best. Otherwise, I'm not going to have an impact. And I was reminded last week, I'm not the best. I, I was uh, made very aware of my lack of abilities when some of my friends were taking tally marks on how many times I said a word that was not actually a word. Did you catch it last week? Some of my dearest friends brought this to my attention this week that I was using the word exception over and over. And, and I, I know, I was there too. When I said it out loud in my mind, I was like, I don't think that's a word. But I don't know what the right word is, so I'm going to keep saying it as if it is right. Uh, I'm thankful that 
that there are those moments of humility, even in preaching, even in pastoring, so that we are reminded that um, it is not my abilities, it's not my power, it's not your abilities or your power that brings about God's salvation. It's His. It's His Word that brings about conviction of sin. It's His Word that shows us the way in which we might be saved, which is Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection. I'm, uh, as humbling as they are, I'm thankful for those moments because they humble us, but they exalt Christ. And that's what we want more and more. And that's what Paul's going to attempt to do in these closing verses of Romans chapter 11. Humble us and exalt Christ. To exalt the Lord who, uh, and His salvation for not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this uh, with a question. All, uh, all Israel will be saved? Question mark? Paul says it as a statement, but, but I want us to consider that in this passage this morning because that phrase in Romans chapter 11 is probably one of the most discussed verses in, in this entire section of Romans 9 through 11. But what I think this passage is going to leave us with is um, some truths about God and His salvation for us. And so if you are taking notes, after you've written, all Israel will be saved? Question mark. Note this. God's humbling and mysterious salvation. God's humbling and mysterious salvation. Again, Paul is uh, writing this so that we might be humbled and there's another point that we'll see at the end of our time and even next week together of why he's writing this. But we see that in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. My, my old, decade-old version of the ESV says, I want you to understand this mystery. If you have a newer version, it probably says something like, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Uh, when Paul, when the Bible speaks about a mystery, it's not speaking about uh, a mystery like you would think a mystery when you're watching a show or a movie of, of something that's unknown and has to be figured out. That was true of a certain season, but when Paul uses the word mystery, it was something that used to be unknown but has now been revealed and is made plain and clear to those who have followed. And the mystery was, who is the Savior? Who is the Messiah that Israel was waiting for? And for decades and centuries and millennia, they were searching for and looking for this Messiah, waiting for Him waiting for this Savior to show up on the scene, but they didn't know who it was until Jesus Christ came from heaven to the earth, 
he was born of a virgin, as was promised in the Old Testament, fulfilling those prophecies. He took on flesh and became um, not only 100% God, but 100% man at the exact same time. He lived a perfect and sinless life, unlike anybody who had lived on this earth up to that point. And he willingly, though, laid down his very own life for the sins of all who would believe in him, taking the punishment, being the substitute for them, standing in the gap, if you will, and taking the punishment for the sins uh, that we so deserve. And he was buried in the tomb, and yet on the third day, the tomb was empty, and he rose victorious back to life, conquering sin and death. Uh, he, he appeared to many on the earth for 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of God, which is where Jesus is right here, right now, awaiting the time when he'll return to take all of those who have believed in him to be with him. Now, that reality was unknown for hundreds and thousands of years. They didn't know who was that Savior. But when Jesus came and did everything that I just told you that He did and that God's Word says that He did and that Jesus uh, said that He would do, uh, that mystery was no longer a mystery. It was made known to us. And, and so that is what Paul, that's how Paul is using this word mystery. He wants us to understand this mystery. He doesn't want us to be unaware of this mystery of first and foremost of who Jesus is and who the Savior is, but then secondly, the mystery of salvation, of how both Jews and Gentiles will be saved really in the same manner, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul had already pointed out back in verse 13, he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And so when we're reading in verses 25, and he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, he's speaking to Gentiles saying, I don't want you to become proud Gentiles because you have believed in Jesus Christ, and for the most part, the Jews have not. Don't think you're smarter than they are. Don't think you're better than they are. Don't think you've earned that revelation and an understanding of that mystery. Um, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, and let Him be the one to exalt you. Multiple times, not only in the Old Testament, in Proverbs, but it's quoted twice in the New Testament uh, by both Peter and James. They quote Proverbs as saying, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And Paul is warning and encouraging us who have received God's forgiveness and grace and mercy to not be proud in thinking that we have earned it or deserved it or are better than anyone else who hasn't received it, uh, lest we become wise in our own sight. Don't become proud. Don't become arrogant. Be humble 
when you consider this mysterious salvation that, that God has given to us. But then he goes on to really explain something that he uh, had introduced earlier in, in chapter 11. This mystery of um, salvation for both Israel and the Gentiles. He says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Uh, we talked about this last week, looking at Romans chapter 11, verse 11, just previously, uh, where Paul says in that second or third sentence, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And speaking about the Jews, they rejected God. They had this trespass against God in rejecting Jesus as the Savior. And when they rejected Jesus, when they hardened themselves against the Lord, um, God also, says, Paul says, partially hardened them. And I think when he says partially hardened them, that, that means both scope and sequence. Not all of them had been hardened, for there was always a remnant of Jews who believed that Jesus was their Savior, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for. Paul himself was one of them. So there was a partial hardening. It wasn't all Jews, but it was most Jews. Um, but then also the, the sequence of this hardening. It wouldn't last forever. It was partial in that it was for a season, but this hardening wouldn't last forever. There would come a point when this hardening would be taken off of Israel and more Jews, many more Jews than had believed previously would begin to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior. This is why Paul said back in verse 11, that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Uh, the salvation that when the Jews rejected Jesus, it began to spread um, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Gentiles began to believe these things to be true. And God's mysterious plan of salvation was that when the Israelites would see many of these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus, they would be jealous with a righteous jealousy for what was supposed to be theirs. They too would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And so this partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And then it sounds as if Paul believes that that partial hardening will be removed when all of the nations of the world uh, have been reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. Then it seems as if Paul believes the partial hardening of Israel will be removed and more of the Jews would come to faith in Jesus. 
And we have to hope and pray that that would be the case. Which is why in verse 26 he says, and in this way. And I think that phrase is key. I've got an arrow on in this way pointing back up to verse 25. And in this way, in that the Jews would reject Jesus, the Gentiles would believe Jesus, the Jews would be jealous and hopefully turn and repent and believe in the Messiah. In that way, in that process, all Israel will be saved. Now, like I said earlier, Paul makes a a statement, but I'm asking it as a question. What, What does he mean by all Israel will be saved? Does he mean that just because you were born into a Jewish family, I'm born as a descendant of Abraham. Just because you have Israelite blood, you are going to be saved. I don't think so. Because that would go contrary to so much of what Paul has already said in the book of Romans. Um, That not all Israel is actually the true Israel who have come by faith. So I don't think he's saying that all Israel will be saved simply because of their heritage here. Uh, What I think he's speaking about is a uh, larger, more full um, picture of Israel. Uh, That the majority of Israel, the nation as a whole, though not every single individual, will be saved. Whereas Israel could be categorized right now as rejecting Jesus predominantly, there will come a time and a season in which Israel predominantly can be categorized as believing in Jesus as a nation. And we do this too with our language. We're like, oh, everybody is going to watch the championship game tomorrow night. You know, America is going to be huddled around their TV and watching. Well, that's may be true predominantly of a large population, uh, maybe even of the Super Bowl or something like that. But not every specific individual is going to be huddling around their TV on Super Bowl Sunday or on Championship Monday or whatever it is. And so I think Paul's using that all in that way. Speaking of the nation as a whole, though he's not speaking about every single individual. For Paul has made it abundantly clear that salvation uh, are to those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and proves this using the Old Testament. And here, this is, it seems as if it's one quote, uh, but it's actually three different scriptures. He says in verse 26, as it is written, and then he quotes from Isaiah 59, Verse 20 and 21, there it says in Isaiah that the Redeemer will come to Zion. But look here at what Paul says, how Paul quotes it. He says the Deliverer will come from Zion. It almost seems as if Paul believes that this Redeemer has already come to Zion, come to Jerusalem, 
to make a way of salvation and at some point in the future he will come from the heavenly Zion to establish a people for himself. That there's another coming. And in that way he will banish ungodliness from Jacob according to Isaiah chapter 27 verse 9. Isaiah 27 verse 9 that says, Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. But then he also quotes Jeremiah 31 and verse 33 and 34 where he quotes the beginning of verse 33 and the very end of verse 34 that says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is uh, several Old Testament Scriptures that Paul is using to prove that God will, in this way, though they are partially hardened right now, when that partial hardening is removed, the nation as a whole, though not every single individual, will be saved when the Deliverer comes to banish ungodliness, to fulfill His covenant from the Old Testament, and to take away their sins. And so again, here is the mystery of God's salvation. Our God who is infinite. Our God who is omniscient. Our God who is omnipotent. Um, He does things in His own way. He does things in a way that is sometimes unexplainable to finite uh, humanity. And this is one of those things. This mystery of salvation, though revealed uh, at some form and at some level, uh, at the same time is so much bigger than us. Which then ought to lead us to a place of humility. To say God is God and we are not. And if God has saved us, predominantly us as Gentiles who were far from Him and has brought us near to Him by making Himself, Jesus, near to us. Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. If God has saved us in this amazing way, can He not too save Israel in a mysterious way, in a marvelous way that would humble us and the Jews and exalt Him in the end. Paul uh, always, the, the result of Paul's view of God and salvation and election and choosing and predestination and foreknowledge always results in humility and worship. Always. It never results in an argument It never results in pride. It it, it always results in humility and worship. Which is why I think Paul has commanded and warned us three times to not be proud, not be arrogant, and lest you be wise. Which is why he's also going to 
when we're done with this passage, end in worship, which we will focus on next week on Palm Sunday. Like many of those who gathered in Jerusalem to praise Jesus as the Messiah and sing His hallelujahs on that Sunday, uh, we too want to gather together to worship and praise God for the salvation that He's made available to us. But not only this humbling and mysterious salvation, secondly, I want you to note God's irrevocable gifts and call. In verse 28, he explains a little bit more. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Again, let me just go back to draw your eyes to verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. This is one of those passages, and you can come look at my Bible, and anytime there's a pronoun, I've attempted to write out who that pronoun is speaking of. Because it can sometimes get confusing. But we have to use our context as the reason to understand these pronouns. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. Who's the they? The context t- demands that, we're ta- that Paul's talking about the Jews. So I've written Jews over they. The Jews are enemies of God for your sake. Who's the your? It's the Gentiles. But as regards election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But what does that mean? As regards the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins and salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, as regards that gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Remember, they have hardened themselves and rejected Jesus as the Son of God um, and the Messiah so that God partially hardened them as well. And the Jews' rejection of Jesus led to the Gentiles' belief in Jesus. And you may say, well, how? How did that happen? Let's consider even what happened in history, even in the book of Acts, as the apostles, Jesus' commissioned sent ones to proclaim the gospel, uh, they were sent out, Jesus said, to first proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, how did that come about? Well, they began proclaiming the good news of forgiveness of sins and salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus first in Jerusalem. And many believed, but many more did not believe. Many more were actually angry about that message that they were proclaiming, so much so that it, uh, it led to persecution 
of those who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior. And as those believers were persecuted, both Jews and Gentiles, they began to scatter. And they began to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And as they began to scatter in persecution, they took the gospel with them, the good news of the gospel. And the gospel went to Judea and Samaria. And, and even from there, um, the gospel spread because of persecution, but also because of commissioning and sending missionaries like Paul to the ends of the earth. And so, as regards the gospel, the good news, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. They had rejected Jesus. God and His mysterious salvation partially hardened them so that the gospel would spread both on mission and as a result of persecution to the ends of the earth so that all of the nations of the Gentiles would hear the good news about Jesus and believe. So, the, the, the Jews are enemies of God. For your sake, Gentiles, you've benefited from their rejection. But Paul says it doesn't, it's not going to end there. As regards election, and election is speaking of God's foreknowledge and God's predestining and God's choosing. God's, as regards God's election and His salvation, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. There is, uh, God will make good on His promises. He, he will not go back. He will not change. He has promised that Israel will be saved. That Israel is His people and He's not going to go back on that. Again, not every single individual in Israel simply because they're a part of Abraham's family. But all of those who, like Abraham, have come to God by faith. This is why in verse 29, he summarizes it and says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts, the grace, the mercy, the adoption of God, the promises of God, all of these things that are, were not only given to the Jews first, but also to the Gentile, uh, they're irrevocable. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 uses that word, that same word there, and it's translated there as without regret. Or it could be translated even without repentance. That the gifts and the calling of God are without regret. He did them rightly. They're without repentance. He did them purely. He doesn't need to repent of them. They're unchangeable. They're unable to be revoked. They're unable to be altered. God will make good on His gifts. God will make good on His calling. This may remind you and may take us back even to Romans chapter 8 where Paul spoke about our calling where he said that those whom God foreknew before the foundation of the earth in a saving way, He also predestined. And those He predestined, He called. 
and every single one of those he called, he justified. And every single one of those he justified, he glorified. How is that possible? Well, it's because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Nobody can thwart God's humbling and mysterious plan of salvation. Nobody can change him from showing his grace. Nobody can cause him to not fulfill his promises there. This is God's irrevocable gift and and call that Paul mentions as a part of God's mysterious salvation. But there's a third aspect of this, and it's God's consignment and mercy on all. God's consignment and mercy on all. We see that in verse 30. Again, it would be helpful to consider who the pronouns are speaking of. Remember chapter 11, verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So now verse 30. For just as you, who is it? The Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. Who's the there? It's the Jews. So they, the Jews, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. Here, Paul is going back, like we talked about last week, to God's uh, history of salvation. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles were predominantly known as and categorized by disobedient to God. They worshipped false idols. They worshipped false gods. They went their own way. Um, Contrary to Israel, who was chosen by God, set apart. Uh, He chose Abraham, made him the father uh, of the nation of Israel. And they were to be a light on a hill. They were to be um, God's foremost display of His love and salvation in hopes that all of the nations of the world would come to Israel and believe in their God and follow Him and, and, and follow their ways in that. But the, most of the world, most of the Gentiles were disobedient to God. Though there were some who... In the Old Testament stories, as we even reflected on in our D group this past week, there were some Gentiles, some nations who did see the grace and the mercy and the power of God. And they did come to Israel and say, We want to worship your God. There were individuals, there were nations. Um, that, that did come, but for the most part, most of the nations were disobedient. And Paul brings up that disobedience there. He says, just as you were at one time disobedient, Gentiles, to God, but you have now received mercy because of their disobedience. Again, their disobedience, their trespass, their hardening was a result of their rejection 
of Jesus as the Messiah. And when the Jews rejected Jesus, uh, the grace and the mercy of God was extended in a new way to the Gentiles. It was spread to them. The Gentiles were known by their disobedience, but they've now received mercy because the Jews rejected Jesus. But Paul says, so they too, again, going back to, lest you not be wise in your own sight, don't think that was just able to happen to you. Like the grafting of the wild olive branch into the cultivated olive tree, God said, don't think I can't go get the branches I've already cut off and graft them back on. He says, so they too, that is the Jews, have now been disobedient. They've rejected Jesus as their Savior in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. God through the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is is saying that the way the Jews will come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior in a larger way is when they see the Gentiles receiving the mercy of God. When they see people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language coming to faith in Jesus and experiencing his salvation, his forgiveness of sin, then the Jews too are going to see that mercy shown to the Gentiles. They too might now receive mercy. And Paul sums it up in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Consigned to, well, let me first say, like we were talking about all Israel previously, that all Israel doesn't necessarily, it means the nation of Israel as a whole, but not necessarily every single individual. When Paul says, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, he's not speaking about every single individual, but all peoples. Paul has been arguing that there's no distinction now in Jesus Christ between Jew and Gentile. And what have these pronouns been talking to us about in this paragraph, both Jew and Gentile. Paul is saying here that both Jew, that he, God has consigned all, both Jew and Gentile, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, both Jew and Gentile here. And so it's not every single individual uh, that is going to receive God's mercy. Paul has made that abundantly clear that when the Lord returns, that there will be a day of judgment. And for those who have believed the, uh, and have already received the mercy of God, they too will 
escape the judgment of God on that day. But those who have rejected Jesus, who have not experienced the mercy of God, will be judged. And Paul explains very clearly that the wrath of God will be poured out because of the sins of mankind. So anyone who wants to take this verse and say that God is going to be merciful on all people in regards to salvation is not doing justice to the context of this verse or the context of the entire book of Romans. It's talking about uh, all regarding Jew and Gentile. But what does it mean when it says God has consigned all to disobedience? The, the word that is translated here in the ESV as consigned it means to enclose or to shut up. Um, like a fish in a net or a prisoner in a prison. I think the NASB translation is more helpful than what I'm using and what you may be using as the ESV. The NASB says in verse 32, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 use this same word and use that idea of imprisonment. And I think it's helpful for us to consider. I think it applies the same truth. In verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, it says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I think that's what Paul is meaning in verse 32 when it says, for God has consigned all to disobedience. God has shut up all in disobedience, imprisoned all in disobedience, not because of anything except our own disobedience. Because we've sinned against God, we have imprisoned ourselves. And, and we're essentially shut up. Uh, we are at the mercy of the guard of the prison. And we need someone outside of the walls of the prison to show mercy on us and to allow us to escape, allow us to get outside of those walls of the prison. And God has consigned both Jews and Gentiles to disobedience so that He might have mercy on all, both Jew and Gentile. This is... a uh, an important truth, and I think that um, just highlighting something from First Peter would be helpful in closing when we're considering this consignment, um, imprisonment because of our sins, and yet this mercy that is available to all who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Um, the Apostle Peter uh, Paul earlier mentioned that he was an apostle 
to the Gentiles. He said that in, in, in Romans um, chapter 11. He would magnify his ministry to the Gentiles because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter, on the other hand, was an apostle to the Jews, predominantly speaking to God's people who did have heritage from Abraham. And so when he writes his letter, he opens it this way. In 1 Peter, he says, he identifies himself and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The elect exiles, the chosen people of God, the Jews, who are now exiles from Jerusalem, who have been persecuted and scattered outside of Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter, as the apostle to the Jews, is writing to those Jews who have been scattered because of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace be multiplied to you. So, he's writing to those Jews who have believed in Jesus as their Messiah. But I want to read something in closing later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. It should sound familiar because Paul just used these verses previously in Romans. In verse, chapter 2, verse 6, Peter uses them to speak to the Jews. He says, For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. That is Jesus. And he says, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. What good news for those of you who find yourselves in the midst of shame because of sin. Maybe because of other people, but even more so because of the thought of standing before God is sinful. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And Peter says, so the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone, Jesus, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. And then get this. Two more verses. Uh, Paul, Peter is writing to the Jews and he says, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What a wonderful verse. But look at verse 10. 
To the Jews who were God's chosen people, he says, once you were not a people. That was language that was used of the Gentiles for the entire Old Testament. But now he's applied it to the Jews. Why? Because they were not his people by faith. And yet, even though they had rejected Jesus and they were not a people, God is saying now, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, keyword, but now you have received mercy. I think that helps us get to the idea of God's mysterious salvation for both Jew and Gentile. We are all disobedient, all consigned in sin, imprisoned in sin. We're all in shame uh, if we were to stand before God. And yet, God has made a way for all to receive mercy, Jew and Gentile. A life full of rejection of Jesus and sin and worldly pleasure uh, or a life even early in your days as, as a child who haven't fall, fallen that much, definitely not in as much sin as your mom and dad have, uh, but looking to Jesus and find a place to find mercy and forgiveness so that when you stand before God, you are not ashamed on that final day. Uh, this type of salvation ought to humble us. Uh, especially for us as Gentiles uh, who have experienced God's grace, have experienced God's mercy, have experienced God's revelation of the Savior in Jesus Christ, so much so that it's, we've kind of become used to it. And even though we know better, we can think we deserve it. We ought to be humbled this morning, again, remembering we too were consigned, imprisoned, and shut up outside of the presence of God because of our sin, and yet God has had mercy on us. Let that humble us this morning and spur us on to when we gather together next week to be ready to worship even more so as we consider Paul's closing words in chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. We'll look at that passage together. Let's leave this place humble and worshipful. Uh, to the Lord alone who has sent His one and only Son to die on the cross in our place and to make forgiveness available to all who repent and believe. But let me encourage you, if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've come here this morning and maybe in response to God's Word, uh, feel a sense of regret, feel a sense of shame, feel a sense of conviction, of the Lord because of your sin, I want you to know many of us in this room have felt that. Uh, and we too, by God's grace, realized that Jesus 
came and died on the cross and rose from the dead to take our sin, to take our shame, to take our regret. That conviction of sin is actually God's mercy towards you in its beginning stages in hopes that you too would humble yourself before the Lord, repent of your sins, and believe in Jesus Christ who is the only way for salvation for Jew or Gentile. And so would you hear me encouraging you, not just encouraging you, warning you that there is no other way of salvation, which is why Paul said, in this way Israel will be saved. In this way, the way of faith in Jesus Christ, you too can be saved. And so would you believe in Him this morning? Let's pray. Father, we are a people who obviously, because of Paul's words, need to be reminded that we ought to be humble. We ought to not be proud in our salvation, thinking we deserve it or have earned it, for we haven't. And so, Lord, would you humble us even this morning? For we know that you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. And Lord, may our humility that comes as a fruit of the Spirit uh, be uh, transformed into worship as well. As we praise you in response to your word in just a moment, but as we also leave here sent as uh, your people on mission to take this good news, this gospel of forgiveness of sins and salvation to anyone and everyone whom you put in our path this week. May we too share this good news so that others uh, might um, repent and believe as we have as well. And God, I pray that if uh, there is someone here considering these truths for them this morning, uh, that their first question would be, have I repented and believed in Jesus, who is God's only way of salvation and forgiveness of sins? And if not, God, I pray that they, in this moment, between them and the Lord, would pause to confess their sin to God and to confess their faith in Jesus as their Savior. That humble little prayer, uh, Lord, I pray you would hear and that you would save and that you would put them uh, on the path to following Jesus all the days of their life. By the power of your Holy Spirit and with the help of the church, uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.